You might know where that title of the sermon comes from. Do you feel in charge? It's from the third of Christopher Nolan's uh, Batman trilogy, Dark Knight Rises. And there's a moment, if you're not familiar, where uh, there's this character named Bane played by uh, Tom Hardy. Apparently he beefed up for this thing. I mean, he really bulked himself up. And it looks really intimidating. And, uh, and he's got this weird mask on that he has to be have because it uh, provides some sort of thing that eases the pain that he's gotten from being in prison, whatever. But uh, at one point, he's, well, there's a guy who's made a deal with him, a guy named Daggett, who wants to take over Wayne Enterprises. And so at one point, things are not going as Daggett expects them to be going. And so he walks up to Bane with his assistant standing behind him and says, you know, what's going on here? Why are you got my construction crews done? Don't you understand that I'm in charge? No, excuse me. Let me get this right. Don't you know what's going on? And so Bane looks at him and he tells the assistant to leave the room. And, uh, and that's when the guy turns, he says, no, no, stay here. I'm in charge. And he looks back and Bane puts his hand on his shoulder and says, do you feel in charge? <laughs> and right after that, he breaks the guy's neck and murders him. <laughs> now, I might see a strange, uh, odd joining together of things, but I thought of that when I thought of the situation with Adam and Eve in the garden where, you know, the, the serpent comes along and, and says, says to her, essentially, he says, um, you know, you, you'll, you'll not need to worry about this. Uh, this is nothing you need to be concerned about because you'll not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of your, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And then it says their eyes were opened. And it's as if guy standing there says, do you feel in charge? Well, at the end of that, Bane murders the guy, and God in his grace offers redemption to these. This idea of authority, this idea of authority is foundational. That's the, the title of the series, Foundational Realities. And we've been looking at several things that I think are just really important for us to get settled into our consciousness, our understanding of ourselves, our relationship to the world, so that we'll we'll be able to actually pursue what we've been called to pursue, uh, the glory of God and uh, bringing, serving him in a way that will do just that, bring glory to him. And the first we looked at was the reality that we're not fully human. Sin has really, really changed us as human beings. And, uh, and we've argued that, uh, that really Jesus is the only fully human who ever has walked on the face of the earth. And uh, that he's the only normal one that has. I mean, because he lived as you're supposed to live underneath the authority of his father, doing the father's will, doing it joyfully, being obedient even to the point of death upon a cross. His relationship with the broken world around him was one of grace, of mercy, but yet of righteousness and justice. No, he understood what it was to be human. And then we considered how it is that we are called, we are constituted as stewards. That is that we don't own anything. That is that uh, everything is that, that, that it, uh, belongs to God. He's made it. He belongs. And he entrusts it into the care of human beings to take the potentials that he has put into creation and to do something with it, to make something of the world. And if we don't understand that, then we're not really functioning as we're structured, as we're constituted to be. And then out of that, we talked about how it is that as stewards, we are actually laboring for a reward. There, there, there is going to be a day when all will have to give an account to God. And on that day, what we want to hear, what everybody should want to hear, but we certainly want to hear as followers of Jesus is well done, good and faithful servant. 
that that is really the reward. That is the hope set before us that we will hear from the one who has created us, who has redeemed us, who has entrusted to us his gospel, his creation, the relationships that we have. And when we stand before him, he goes, well done. And that's the relationship we talked about of the inferior to the superior. We don't like to hear that kind of language, but that's the reality. You know, we're like a dog before the master. The dog who comes up just wants to get his head scratched and is so happy when he walks through the door, his tail starts going like crazy. That's really what we are in relationship to God because he is God and we are his creature. Perhaps a more warming rather than thinking of yourself as a dog is if you're thinking of yourself as a child who welcomes the praise of the parents. That was incredible. That was a great job. So that's where we are. We're, 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 we're pursuing as stewards this, this reward. And then another aspect we have to see of ourselves as Christians, as we talked about last week, that indeed we have been put into the world for the world. But yet in order to be for the world, we need to be not of the world. We're in the world, not of the world, yet we are for the world. And because we are for the world, then we take care to watch how it is that we are influenced by all the other ideas, thoughts, ideologies, desires, plans, promotions out there that come from the world, a world that's not submitted to the authority of God. So here we are, redeemed by God, stewards over the gospel, stewards over our lives, stewards over our relationships, everything that we have. We want to hear that well done, good and faithful servant. So that means that we recognize that we're in the world. God has put us here for the sake of bringing glory to him. And if he brings glory, then then the world sees what it's like to really live like a human being. And in order to do that, then we have to be careful how it is that we are not of the world. And today's foundational reality, I think, is, is just as important. It's this whole idea of authority. And I think, you know, I don't know about you guys, but certainly in the generation that I grew up in the, uh, in the, in the 60s and 70s, the idea of authority was just inimitable. It's just antithetical to the way you're supposed to live. You're supposed to be free from authority. But the reality is, is that God has created everything and he rules everything. And authority is woven into everything that he has made. It is inescapable. Several times in the scripture, what does it state? It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To acknowledge that God is God, to do that reverently, humbly, submissively, is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom is how we are supposed to live. It's taking what we know and applying it well. And so when we begin to to see, okay, my my thinking is restructured, even as Nick was saying earlier about hallowed be your name. When my thinking is structured so that I understand God is God and I'm not God, then, oh, I see. Then I can begin to evaluate wisely. I begin to make decisions that are wise. This vertical nature of humanity's relationship with God, it's manifest throughout creation. God is always God, never not God. Now, this authority that he has by being God is, is granted in particular spheres, typically understood, and we'll talk about this later, but the family, the church, and, and society or civil, uh, civil rule. And it's to be exercised, we understand, 
to the example of Jesus, to his teaching, is that it's done with a servant's heart. So authority, it can be misused, it can be abused by those exercising it, yeah? But if they neglect the truth that all authority is of God, who places it into their hands to wield, then they're going to have to one day give an account. And consequently, then, the abuses of authority can be challenged, and they can be challenged with wisdom, with discernment, but to rebel against the concept of authority, it's not the beginning of wisdom. It's really the height of foolishness. When does authority first appear in the scripture? Well, right at the very beginning, when God says, let there be light, and there was light. <laughs> he speaks, and all that he expects to come to pass comes to pass. And the days are ordered as he, as he creates the different aspects and begins to populate these different places, the sky, the sea, and the land. And eventually it leads to what? To the making of the man and the woman, those who will bear his image. But here, there's something new added to it. God shares his authority with the man and the woman. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And he goes on to say, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, heavens, and over everything that moves on the earth. Yeah. So God possesses all authority, creates human beings. But here what he does is he entrusts, he shares that authority with these who bear his image. But the human being is still under God's authority. Remember what he tells Adam. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So he entrusts this authority, but the relationship, the vertical relationship is still intact. God is still the one to be feared. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what he instructs Adam there in the garden reveals something about authority. Authority and power are necessary companions. They, they complement each other or complete each other. In God, authority and power are perfectly wedded together. As God, he has authority to command what he wishes. As God, he has the power to carry it out and the power to punish when it is not. See, authority without power to exercise it is not authority. So you could be part of a company. Let's say they make you vice president over sales. And every time you try to institute some new policy in the company, you know, somebody comes along and says, oh, no, we're not doing that. Uh, uh, like the president of, of Russia, for instance. And the president of Russia says, I think we should do that. And, you know, Putin comes along and says, oh, no, we're not doing that. Something a little bit closer to home is the administration between Andrew uh, Cuomo and, and Bill de Blasio here in, in mayor. I don't know if you've tracked this or if you paid attention to it, but every time Bill de Blasio said, this is what we're going to do, Cuomo said, no, no, we're not going to do that. So that's authority without power, and authority without power is not authority. But power without legitimate authority is the exercise of abuse. Just think of all the autocrats that have been in R, even currently right now, that, that they, they're in charge, but they're not there legitimately. They have elections that don't mean anything. How is it that Putin always wins 99% of the vote? 
I mean, some people probably really love him because, you know, he's restoring the glory of Russia. But there's plenty of other people who don't. But somehow he always gets 98 percent of the vote. And so he exercises power without legitimate authority. And that leads to abuse. So the first mistake that human beings make about God's authority is that he think, they think that God's authority is not accompanied by power. Yeah, but they're necessary companions, right? Because again, the first mistake is to think that God wouldn't or couldn't back up his command to not eat of that tree. Isn't that what the serpent suggests? He says, he says listen, you'll be on equal footing. When you eat that tree, you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be on equal footing. You'll no longer have, he'll have power over you. And he won't be able to carry out that sentence of death. You'll not surely die. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this lack of reverence on the part of the serpent and ultimately expressed by both Adam and Eve, this lack of reverence, appreciation for who God is, awe of God is the root of human folly. Human beings really do think that they are in charge. But God is never not in charge. He always exercises authority over his creation. We are never not subject to his authority in absolutely every aspect of our lives. Now, this is not just something to acknowledge. Frankly, it is something indeed to celebrate. That, uh, that opening call to worship. Listen again to just some of this language. How it is that God in his authority is the root of all blessing. Listen. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the word is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with faithfulness. That God is in charge and always in charge is something to be celebrated. So God creates everything. He brings some order to it. And then he tells the human beings to make something of it. And they can do this because God is the one who possesses the authority to grant them that authority to fill the earth and subdue it. And God never relinquishes his authority. He mediates it through his image bearers, as we've seen. But it's because he possesses that authority that their exercise of authority is possible. Think again about the Great Commission. What does Jesus say? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Go and do what I want you to do, which is going to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Trinitarian God and the reality of the Trinitarian God and teaching them to observe all things. So it is the possession of God, fully possessing all authority, which he grants to us to use, that he mediates his authority through people like us, that is the way in which this relationship is set up. It's just the way it's set up. It's his authority he gives to us to use. And when we do that, and we do that well, then we're living in reality. We're not living in unreality. We're living in the way things really are. We're no longer listening to the serpent says, you don't need to worry about this. 
God, you know, he might think he's in charge, but he's not in charge. In fact, he won't even be able to carry out the sentence against you if you go ahead and just ignore what he said about this tree. But the authority and power held by God are perfectly wedded together. When human beings think that if we really are in charge, that God will not hold them accountable. It's not the beginning of wisdom. It's foolishness. What the Bible teaches us is that from from God and through God and to God are all things. And the writer of Hebrews says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, without God continuing to exercise his authority by upholding the universe by the word of his power, there would be chaos. Um, My children have all studied uh, instruments, musical instruments, and uh, um, I have sat through enormous amounts of lessons, group classes. I don't know if you know the Suzuki method. How many have done the Suzuki method in the room? I figured a few of you would have, yeah. Well, I mean, we were at the Suzuki, the the premier North American Suzuki institution. I don't know if it still is, but it was at the time, right here in Midtown in Manhattan. And one interesting uh, interesting thing that happened that I think relates to what we're considering. Sitting in one of these group classes, and the students were all playing whatever they were playing, you know, one of the tunes from out of book, whatever. And, um, and we're all finished. And at one point, the guy leading the, the class uh, said, uh, he turned to the parents and he said, I'm going to have them play this again. And I'm going to have them stop at a certain point in it. And then I want you silently to keep counting where you think the rest of that piece ends. Yeah. So they all start, you know, and then we're supposed to keep counting as to when we think it ends. And he said, when you get to, when you think you're there, just keep your eyes closed and you raise your hand when you think the end of the piece stops. And so we close our eyes, we raise our hands. And he said, you know, you all ended up about eight to 10 different places. See, that's what a conductor does for an orchestra. A conductor keeps everybody together. And the conductor is a place, stands in a place of authority to make sure that people are not counting things out on their own strength, on their own wisdom, on their own understanding. But God is ruling. He's like the conductor of all that he has. And if we don't have God in that place of authority, we end up with chaos. Yeah, we all end up in a different place at the end of the piece of music. He keeps everything in order, despite, despite how it might seem to us. So this idea of authority, then, of living underneath the authority of God, understanding that authority is just is. It cannot be fought against. It cannot be done away with. We cannot think better of it. Authority exists because God exists, and God is a God who indeed possesses all authority and all power. So we've been talking, therefore, about how to become more human, right? How, how it is it that we are becoming human? How, and in order to understand that, we understand our place, our relationship to, uh, uh, to sin, how it's affected us. We understand that we're stewards, a relationship to that, uh, the inferior to the superior, that we have a master, that we are a steward over what he has entrusted into our care. Well, so also with authority to be fully human, we need to experience and exercise authority in order that the envisioned, you know, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth can be accomplished. We need authority. Here's a great quote. We need authority to be ourselves. We cannot succeed at being human beings. We cannot have a flourishing human life without the functioning of authority in the multiple dimensions within which we live. 
This necessity of authority does not come upon us because of some tragic flaw in human beings. Rather, the necessity of authority is a manifestation of the glory of being human. Authority is built into what it means to be human, and we never escape from needing it for our flourishing. Authority really exists only to provide what is needed for human beings to flourish. See, if that's the way we're made, if that's the way creation is ordered, if this is God says, no, this is how it is, and that there is, for instance, his will, and, and that what our will needs to be is in line with his will, and that will that he expresses is, is a manifestation of, of his authority, our flourishing depends upon listening to God and, and, and doing what he says and living in, in, in the world as though he exists and that he governs it all and he understands where it's all going and how it all works. So if we're going to flourish, if we're really going to feel what it's like to be human, this is part of what we need to understand about ourselves, that we are indeed under authority, God's authority. And we, have, we are structured such that we need to be under authority. So it's folly, for instance, that as some people are trying to do in the recent, uh, recent year and a half or so, try to create these zones that are free from authority. We're just going to get together and kind of just hang out and sort of decide we don't need the police. We don't need the mayor. We don't need that. authority. We don't need that level over us. But that's not how we're created. We are created to always have a level of authority over us that always finally gets back to God for of him and through him and to him are all things. So how is God's authority mediated? Well, the Bible teaches us that it's mediated in three areas, three spheres, let's say, of life. It's in the family, in the church, and in society. And that includes civil government and, frankly, other institutions and structures that exist within the, uh, the, the world outside of the church. And I think that order is right. Family, church, and then civil, though you'd think otherwise if you read the news, but... In the family, the Bible expects that there is, there is authority that exists within, within the family. You know, a helpful way, I think, to think about authority, and this helped me at one point when I was a, a parent of younger children, is to think about authority all existing within a bowl in the life of a family. It all exists within a bowl. And the father gets to pull some out, the mother gets to pull some out, and the children have a level of authority too. When things go wrong in a family is when a child, for instance, takes much more authority out of that bowl than they're able to, come to, to deal with. Now they, they, I'm an independent actor here. I know what's going on. And the next thing you know, they're walking out in front of cars because they don't really have a grasp, right, of what's going on. And so the parents are say, no, don't walk out in front of cars. Don't run out in the street. So things get out of whack when, when one of those parts of that family begins to draw more authority out of that bowl than is really theirs to, uh, to, to use. And so it happens in the family, it happens in the church, it happens in civil government. We'll talk about all of that in just a bit. But that idea that authority exists within the bowl, and, and the father is called to be this Christ-like leader in his home. The mother is supposed to be under the authority, as the church is to Christ, under Christ's authority. Children are under the authority of both parents. And what's important about this is that this foundational relationship of, of the human society is, as God has designed it, it has a profound influence on each person that's in that family. So you think about 
the, the ways in which we hear reported, and again, we're in a broken world, we are all broken people, and how it is that, that families are broken, and, and, uh, and, and, and just uh, awful things can happen, and just, uh, just all things that visit a family, that we often hear, do we not, that, that, that so-and-so ends up where, where he or she is because of what went on back in those foundational years, those formative years, or they're in their family. That, that something happened that, that, that disrupted this design of God, and, and then their repercussions of that are great. And it isn't true for everybody. Everybody who grows up in a broken home or grows up with an abusive parent, it isn't true of everybody. But it can happen and does happen that somebody ends up then finding themselves out in the midst of a society, thrust out into the world, And their understanding of who they are in relationship to that world has been profoundly, profoundly altered. Because God intends that this authority that he has being mediated through these various spheres, these various institutions that he's created, are going to be something that shape us and mold us into who we are supposed to be as humans. And I would suggest to you that if somehow due to the reality of who uh, the, the existence of a person has had growing up in which this was very disordered, that, that part of what God offers to us in redemption and discipleship is bringing that order back into place, of being able to see, you know, this is how it was supposed to be. And we find grace, we find forgiveness, we find healing. We, we do what we need to do to, to understand who we are in relation to the world, but it is possible. It is possible. But this foundational relationship, I suggest, is the base from which all the other relationships that we have in which we're considering this particular idea of authority that begins to flow. So what about the church? Well, indeed, God mediates some of his authority through the church. And that's important to understand because, remember, we're in the world for the world and not of the world. So we want to understand how it is that God has designed his church so that we will understand his authority being exercised within the life of the church because it's, again, a reflection of what's reality. It's, it's redemptive. So because we are in the world, not of the world, yet for the world, this demands that it be done well. Well, who's the chief authority in the church? Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. And yet his authority is mediated through what are often called under shepherds. He's the chief shepherd, and then there are those who are under shepherds. And they prove to be a vital part in the guarding of the flock of the chief shepherd against the forces who would want to destroy it, caring and nurturing for the flock. Listen to Paul's admonition when he meets with the, uh, the elders from Ephesus. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So you can hear that that protective part, that being wary, being guard, on guard, 
There's a reflection, isn't there, back even to the language that God spoke uh, to Adam back in the garden. But listen how Peter says that those who are in this position are supposed to uh, exercise this kind of authority. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but by being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So there is authority that exists in God that he mediates through these in the church that he mediates and he puts people in charge in order that they might serve as under shepherds. But there's also a certain amount of authority that's mediated to everybody that's in the church. That each believer in Jesus is vested with a certain amount of authority to, to, uh, to, to apply what they learn and what they know and what they have grown to understand about Christ to the life of the community of which they're part. That's why Paul doesn't say just to the elders. You know, if you find someone who's stuck in a sin, you know, you who are elders, go and correct that one. He says, no, you who are spiritual, go and correct that one. Because of a mutual responsibility that we have in the the life of the church, that there's, there's an authority that you have to speak with grace, with humility, with understanding, with empathy, when it is that we need to hear a stern word from someone else or to give a stern word even. So there is authority that is given through the church, through those who are leading, but also to all of them in order that we might be, as Paul says in in, in Philippians, blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. See, that's what we're called to do, right? In the world, not of the world, yet for the world. And so this authority that's been mediated through the church is for that very end, that God would be glorified through the life of the church. So lastly, then, this other third sphere is is what we would call civil or outside of the church or societal authority. And as I said earlier, given all the emphasis that's placed upon politics in our country, one would would not, you wouldn't be faulted for thinking that this is the most important. This is the most important. We got to make sure the right people are in office. We got to make sure we're going to have a just society by having the right people in office. But the reality is, it's the third importance. Because first is what goes on in the family that creates the people that are going to be voting or ruling. And then if they're underneath the, 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 the wisdom and, and, and truth and, and, and being shaped more and more to the image of Christ, you've got people that know how to exercise this authority well. Really, the other two come first. But of course, it doesn't. It doesn't for a whole lot of people. But this part of, of, a, of God's authority being mediated out into the world is indeed rests within this civil sphere. So we read that passage in Romans 13 where it says every person is subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. So we learn of that, right? That God is what would be called the efficient cause of the government. But also we learn of the purpose of it, that this one who is in that position is there as a minister of God for good. 
Philip Melanchthon says, for Paul has added the efficient cause, namely that the magistrate has been instituted by God. And in the matter of the final cause, he adds a noteworthy clause for your good, in which he distinguishes the tyrant from the true magistrate. So this language which is debated and people argue with Romans 13 of just, you know, when, what's the line that, that the magistrate crosses that we say, no, we can't follow you. And the things that we're compelled to do that are absolutely contrary to the word of God that are clear and so on, then no, we can't do it, even at the risk of our own lives. We can't join the crowd that says we have no king but Caesar. We have to acknowledge that indeed we do have a king, our Lord Jesus. And when we are commanded by those in civil authority to do things run contrary to what we know we cannot do, then we have every right to resist. Now, it might be that that resistance isn't that you take up arms to fight that government, but you resist by your confession, even to the point of losing your life. So even though we have this very sort of seemingly universal blank statement here, just just all-encompassing statement from Paul in Romans 13, the reality is, is that we are thinking about this role that the magistrate plays in, in, the, in the teleological sense, the end to which it has, been, it has been created. And so we can see that God intends that civil authority be exist, that it's, it's a way that he's, he's mediating his own authority out into the world. But we also know, we know, we've experienced, we can see it even now, that that gets used and abused. So we, there are lines that we are not, to cross, but at the same time, we have to recognize that this is a legitimate form of government. This is a legitimate form of exercising authority because God has called it into being and He has entrusted it into their care. And yet, it gets abused. It does not done with God's intention. It doesn't sound at all like Psalm 96 of how God rules. And so, as uh, I love what Augustine says here, without justice, what are kingdoms but gangs of bandits? (laughs) And that's true, right? You give somebody all that power, and that really they're just a bunch of bandits if they're not really recognizing that this has been entrusted into their care. But in this exchange that took place between Jesus and Pilate, Jesus still acknowledges the rightness of rule, of authority that Pilate sits in a position of authority. But he also warns Pilate that he will be held accountable for his actions. And so will all the one who misused their authority. And and he seems to uh, suggest that that the greater, the one who will be judged even greater is the one who, who sent Jesus to Pilate to be judged, probably meaning Caiaphas, the high priest. But Pilate's going to be judged and Caiaphas is going to be judged by what they did with their authority. So when Pilate says to him, you know, you're not going to speak. Don't you understand? I have an authority over you. I have power over you. And Jesus says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he would deliver me over to you as the greater sin. See, what Pilate didn't recognize is that really his authority, though legitimate in terms of how God has structured the world, was being illegitimately exercised. And though he had been granted power by Rome to exercise his authority, uh, when he's confronted with truth, when he's confronted with the one who, the only one who can help him, who can redeem him, right? He, he, has, he has no power to do that. He has power to put him to death, but not power 
to keep Jesus in the grave, not power to stop what is being done as Jesus submits himself to God-ordained authority in order to accomplish redemption. And what Pilate is going to need is that indeed he's going to need to see that that action in the end was what would cost him his judgment. So all authority exists in God. And, and to, to act as though we, we can escape it is, is folly, right? It is folly. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We recognize he's always God. And then we begin to say, okay, I understand. All right, I get this. I need to think about this. I need to figure out how it is that I'm going to walk in this. And that we relish, we, 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 we celebrate the reality that, that God is always in charge. And that he has uh, structured us in such that we need that authority in our lives. And though we can step back and evaluate and say that's an abuse of authority, that wasn't handled well, it doesn't do away with the fact that authority is necessary. It's how God has designed us. And so when we have, uh, when we have God's word before us, then we begin to understand how it is, why this is, and how it is that it's supposed to be, uh, uh, be carried out. And in fact, one could argue those three spheres, yeah, family, church, and society, but there's a fourth, and that's really the authority of God's word. That is really ultimately our authority because it represents God's will. It's not God, but it is the revealed will of God and becomes the authoritative interpretation of our existence. And so the authority of God's word we recognize as a church. We say that, you know, we create bylaws and we say it's all subservient to God's word. So the authority of God's word in the church is what keeps the church the church. If the authority of God's word has, has, has begins to cave on just how important it is, and it's happened. If you've watched any sort of major denomination, what they call mainline denominations, the first thing to go is really the authority of scripture. And then after that, all kinds of things begin to come in. And you move from the truth of the authority of scripture to you know, congregations that are just embracing virtually anything that comes down the pike. So there's the authority of God's word in the church, but it's also the authority of God's word in the home, right? The, the, the parents are supposed to teach their children in the, in what the King James says, the fear and admonition of the Lord. It's going to be taking what God has revealed in his word and applying it to their family life and, 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 and allowing it to shape their understanding of, of just how it is that their family is supposed to exist. And ultimately, the authority of God's word is going to be that by which the nations will be judged. It is going to be that which, because of what is in God's word, is revealed about, again, how things ought to be and how it is that when you don't do what you're supposed to do, how it is that there's going to be judgment. But that is what, indeed, the word of God reveals. And so God's authority is mediated, yes, in the home. It's mediated through the parents. It's mediated through the members of the family. It's mediated within the church. It's mediated in civil government. But God's authority is also mediated through his word. On our church building a long time ago, there used to be a sign up there. It said neighborhood church, and there was like an image of a Bible, and it says, God has spoken. God has spoken. That's an authoritative statement. That God has spoken, and he's the one that needs to be paid attention to. You know, there's a famous poem, and I, I, this probably always gets dragged out by preachers all the time, but I'll drag it out myself. And that's the famous poem, Invictus. You know that poem, right? By Henley. And this is a poem that apparently 
uh, Nelson Mandela would, would, would read to himself, she would speak out loud while he was in prison for all the years that he was in that uh, sea of injustice that he was suffering through. And, and it is, there's something about this that says, listen, you can persevere, you can hold on, you're, you're, you're a human being, you can, you can do it. But when you read the whole poem, you recognize that indeed, uh, the fellow who's written this, who went through terrible things in his life, he had amputations, he was sick, so on and so forth. But when he gets to the end of it, really, who's in charge is me. Listen to what he says, out of the night that covers me, Black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, not unbowed, but unbowed, excuse me. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That last couplet's there, right? The allusion to Jesus as narrows the way that leads to life. And, and he says, you know, charge the punishments of the soul, uh, the, the, the scroll, all that, that God says, this is where blessings are, this is where cursings are. He said, it doesn't make any difference to me. I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. C.S. Lewis, in his book, uh, Pilgrim's Regress, where he takes his own take on, on Pilgrim's Progress, if you're familiar with that work. Um, and at one point, you know, it's apparently sort of autobiographical, and he's wrestling with the different people that he meets, and he knows that there's some place that he wants to get to, and he's, he's wrestling with different, different people that he meets and different things that he's, he's wrestling with. And finally, he, he meets Mother Kirk, Mother Church, the one who represents the church. And though that one is trying to persuade that really you need to be here because this is the way you're going to get to where you want to go. He, he, uh, he, the, the character that he's talking about uh, echoes this line from Evictus. He said, I'm afraid it's no use, mother, he said. I cannot put myself under anyone's orders. I must be the captain of my soul and the master of my fate. But thank you for the offer. So eventually, John, the character, does get to where he needs to go. But that's where a lot of people stop. The church offers salvation. The church offers redemption. The church offers the way to truly live. And they say, you know what? Thank you for the offer. But to do that is folly. Because God is God. And he never stops being God. God has all authority. He never gives up that authority. God is the one who governs all things to his good end. And the goal of Jesus in coming and clothing himself in flesh is to actually bring us back underneath that authority. So we're in right relationship with God and we live in a way that we're created to live. So this is again, is something I think, it, it, this, is, this idea that we really are under authority at all times, under the authority of God. And even when things are going terrible and there's an abuse of authority over us, God still is in charge. And that's why Paul can say that, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but no created thing will separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God is in charge. He is the one who's running the show. He is the one who's making the calls. 
And when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, when a human being does find themselves in difficult circumstances because they have been operating as though they are captains of their faith, they are masters of their souls, yeah? That uh, it's like God uh, with, with the gospel comes along and places a hand on their shoulder and said, do you feel in charge? But it's said with grace, not with threat, not with ominous, with grace. Do you feel in charge? You're not in charge. I'm in charge. And I invite you to come underneath my authority and live as you're called to live. Yeah? Let's pray.